0: Um, My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at Commonway, and we're going to keep going this week um, with the series that we're in that we've called Built Together. Um, We're talking about um, some of the ways that we make church happen. And yeah, that includes uh, Sunday morning, um, but it is so much more. It's who we are. It's who we choose uh, to be and how we live our lives. Our church, Commonway, uh, the name, actually, if you I don't think we talk about this quite enough, so this may be news to you, some of you. Uh, the name Common Way, um, it captures this idea of who we, who we hope to be. The end of that word, way, um, it, it's the name that was given to the group of people following Jesus right after the resurrection. Um, so before they were called Christians... Um, They were known as uh, the people of the way. And then the first part of that word, common, um, it just symbolizes or stands for all the things that we share, you know, the things that we have in common as people who follow Jesus. Uh, For example, we believe that Jesus is uh, the Son of God. We believe in His life, His death, and His resurrection, that He is our Savior, Um, And I think if we made a list of all the things that we hold in common, uh, that list probably wouldn't be very long. But I think because it is rather short, it actually, because of that, carries a lot more weight. There's serious significance there, uh, that this is who we are as people who love and follow Jesus. One of the things that I love, um, maybe... As much as any of them, or more than any of the things that may be on this list, is this notion of shared grace. I mean, to put it all together, the name of our church—it comes from this phrase that grace is our common way. And I love this church um, because it's true of us. It's been my experience, and I've been around Common Way for a long time. Um, but I'm telling you that even in especially in the last few months, um, you've put grace on full display. Um, You've really outdone yourselves, and I am so grateful um, and even more honored uh, to call this place home. And so this morning, I want to take a closer look at grace to kind of dig into it a little bit more deeply. Um, I think we know what It is when we see it, when we experience it. Um, But how do we describe it or how do we explain the way that it works in our life? I mean, there's this grace that we all experience as followers of Jesus because of the cross, the work of salvation, the way that the God of the universe says to us, um, you are mine. I accept you. I forgive you. And there's the way that grace plays out in our lives, uh, and then there's the grace that we give each other. So let me me offer this, that grace is God creating a way to draw us closer to Him and become more like Jesus. It's God doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. Uh, Jesus said that I am the way the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except by me. Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's grace. Again, his life, his death, his resurrection. But there's this continual grace that's on display in our lives, the ways in which God daily draws us closer to himself. Um, He also says that I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Full life, abundant life, life as it was meant to be. I think there might be this uh, prevailing misconception. I think both, both around those of us who call ourselves Christians and those who don't, that God's grace is only about getting into heaven. It's like when the queen, Elizabeth herself, gives away a knighthood. You used to be Mr. Anthony Hopkins, but now that I've gently placed this sword on both of your shoulders, you shall forevermore be known as Sir Anthony Hopkins. The same could be true of Dame Julie Andrews. And that's it. The grace has been given, and now you get to go to heaven. And I'm not trying to make less of heaven, Um, I find great comfort. I mean, a lot of comfort, knowing that God will ultimately restore all things. In the book of Revelation, we read this, "...He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away." And that's the finale. That's where we're headed. It's the central promise of Scripture. And we can rest in hope that God already has this settled, that the death that Jesus died uh, on the cross was indeed a victory over death. But what about today? I mean, I don't, I don't know, but maybe today for you is a day of tears. Maybe you are in mourning or dealing with some sort of pain or discomfort or struggle. Uh, Maybe it's physical or emotional or relational. So what about today? How do we experience God's grace now? I want to invite you to turn to John chapter 9, maybe on your phone or if you have a Bible with you. Um, I want to show you something that Jesus did. Something that I think is a great example of how God intends for us to experience his grace. So let's start in verse 1 of chapter 9. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. I'll stop right there because we read immediately that Jesus saw the man. Everything that happens from this point on only happens because Jesus is the catalyst. Because being seen by Jesus opens up tremendous potential for healing. And Jesus sees you. He knows you. He has compassion for you. He loves you. And it's through him that grace is at work in, his, in your life. Uh, Keep going, it says in verse 2, His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. I love the way this is phrased in the message. Um, It says, Jesus said, You're asking the wrong question. You're looking for someone to blame. There is no such cause effect here. Look instead for what God can do. So does God create the suffering that we experience? No, absolutely not. But part of the mystery of this fallen world that we live in is that there is pain. There is suffering There's sin and there's heartache, but God wants to use it all for our good. In Romans, we read that uh, we know that in all things, God works for those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Um, An author, Ruth Haley Barton, puts it this way um, about John 9. Jesus was not trying to sugarcoat the situation. Or to avoid dealing with the harsh realities of life. Yes, there is evil in the world. Yes, there is sin with all its tragic consequences. Yes, there is a complex web of cause and effect relationships at work in the human experience. But what good does the blame question do? The real question is, what is God going to do with it? So let's keep going uh, in John, verse 6, After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Now, often I think when God is in the midst of unfolding his grace in our lives, it can kind of feel like He just put mud in our eyes and told us to go somewhere. Um, it can, we can be confused or even disoriented. It's quite possible that we'll even be completely unaware. And that's normal. I just say that's normal. It's par for the course. Why? Because we're not used to God's kingdom. We're not accustomed to it. What God wants for us is often different than what we want for ourselves or what we can even anticipate. Moving on in verse 8, his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, "'I am the man.' "'How then were your eyes opened?' They asked. And he replied, "'The man they called Jesus, made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. "'Where is this man?' They asked him. "'I don't know,' he said." I love this. It's like Jesus dropped the mic and then ran off the stage. And now there's this chaos that ensues. Uh, It's like the miracle was way too much for the neighbors. We can't handle this. We didn't wake up this morning expecting this to happen. I mean, we've known this guy for our whole lives. He's blind. And that's the end of the story. And the used-to-be blind man, he pipes up and he goes, Seriously, guys, no, 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 no. It, it's, it's really, it really is me. Uh, I should know, right? Do I even get a say in this? All right, then, bub. Where'd the dude go that did this to you? Well, how should I know? I didn't see him. And of course, of course, someone had the bright idea to go to the Pharisees and get them involved. And this grand argument breaks out among the different factions And there's one question that kind of dominates the debate. Is this from God or not? And I got to tell you, I think we ask the same question. In this way, we're really no better off than the Pharisees, that our understanding of the ways of God, it's so limited that it's difficult sometimes to know if he's at work or not. And can I just say that that's Okay. God knows us, he loves us as we are, and he's not waiting on us to figure something out before he gets to work in our lives. And that's just another example of the grace of God. It's grace upon grace. Uh, and then we keep going here in 17. They turned again to the blind man, that be the Pharisees. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. And the man replied, He is a prophet. So watch this. Uh, Earlier in the story, he calls Jesus a man. And now he says he's a prophet. There's something going on here. Something is happening that we're being asked to pay attention to. But let's keep going. In verse 18, they still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight Until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he's our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age and he will speak for himself. His parents, it seems, were scared out of their minds because they know what's happening. This is an interrogation. They see the writing on the wall. Their son is in trouble with the powers that be. This might be a whole other sermon, but I do want to offer this observation that the work of God in our lives, the experience of his grace does not come cheaply or without opposition. I mean, we're talking about thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's grace is an invasion of the world as we know it. And it messes with the status quo, with the way things are. So a second time, the Pharisees summoned the man who had been blind. And they say, give glory to God by telling the truth, because obviously you haven't been so far. We know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. So he replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. He can't explain it. There's an element of mystery to this. He's saying, I know what happened to me, but that's all I've got. You're asking me all these questions. And listen, there are a million things that I don't know. But one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Pharisees, they're not satisfied with that answer. And so they keep arguing back and forth until finally the man says this to them. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And to this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. You know, maybe this guy has always been combative. Maybe even when he was begging and blind, he was, you know, confrontational. But even if that were true, it takes a lot of guts uh, to speak to the Pharisees like this. They didn't have a lot of political power necessarily, but they had enormous influence on society. Uh, A good friend of mine, uh, his name's Chris Overholt, he's the head coach, uh, head football coach at Delta High School. Just imagine for a second what would happen if um, if he had to deal with this. If some punk freshman on the first day of practice chewed Chris out. I don't know if you've ever met Chris. Don't chew him out. He's the nicest guy, but you wouldn't know it looking at him. (laughs) Uh, And then imagine uh, how much Chris could make this kid's life a living nightmare, and then multiply that by a thousand, because that's what we're talking about here. I mean, I think it's possible that maybe... Maybe his courage reveals something. Something is happening in this guy's life that goes beyond the miraculous healing. Let's look again at this, his description of Jesus because it continues to change. First, he said he was just a man, then a prophet. And now he's essentially saying that he is a man from God. So John, who is the author of this book, I think he's shown us something I think he's highlighting this progression for a reason, that something is happening internally. You know, like his mind and his heart are also being changed. And this, I've got to tell you, at least from my experience, is so like Jesus, slowly helping us to see who he really is. And then the story starts to wrap up. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him. Let that sink in for a moment, that Jesus went looking for him. You know, at face value, that might not seem like such a big deal, um, but remember, this isn't just an ordinary man. I mean, he's more than a prophet. Uh, forget my friend Chris for a minute. This is like Frank Reich or... Dare I say, Tony Dungy himself shows up at your front door. We all have things, all have areas where we're desperately in need of God to work. Whether it be sickness, relational issues, financial stress. And then there's the internal work of God. Those places where we lack kindness or joy or peace or self-control. Where we need the spirit of God. Uh, To intervene. There's a promise of God from the Old Testament in the book of Deuteronomy that is still true for us. And God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And the apostle Paul, he echoes that promise when he says that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said do you believe in the son of man who is he sir the man asked tell me so that i may believe in him and jesus said you have now seen him in fact he is the one speaking with you then the man said lord i believe and he worshiped him first he called jesus a man then a prophet and then a man of God. It's the patience of God, the kindness of God on display that as we come to this realization of who He is, as our belief in Him, our faith and trust in Him, as that deepens, that in turn, the grace of God continues to be at work, transforming us. And then like I think happens for a lot of us, when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he says, Lord, I believe. And then he worships him. I was blind, but now I see. Because the healing of his physical blindness was never the main point. Jesus is much more interested in healing our spiritual blindness. And that's tough to hear. I'm the one saying it, and I don't like it. We say, God, fix this, do this, help us here. And he often does, and those are good prayers to pray. But just as often, if not more, his answer is not yet. And there is a deep, deep grace in that invitation to wait On the Lord. I mean, I think he's saying, I have plans for you that are far greater than you even know to ask for. That God is always working for our benefit. And it makes sense that we might just have a mixed up understanding of what is good and best, what we ultimately need. But wait a second, you might say, God healed this man of his blindness. Um, Didn't God take away his suffering? Of course, the answer is yes. Of course he did in this one area, and it was a big one for sure. But he still had his parents, uh, his neighbors, and the Pharisees to deal with. I mean, Jesus didn't solve all of his problems that day. And then there's this bigger question of how does a man born blind uh, who spent his life begging suddenly step into the world of the seeing. I mean, we don't know this for sure, but perhaps there was a way for him to um, provide for himself quickly. But we know he didn't, like, spend his early teenage years in an apprenticeship like a lot of boys uh, would have at that time. So hear me out. I'm not saying that Jesus created these new problems for him. These are just the problems of his new circumstances. But I know this, God did not abandon him. God was with him, and in the same way, he's with us. So the question is, what is God doing in you today? No matter the specifics of his plan for your life, his purpose and his hope is that you'll be transformed by his love and grace to be like Jesus. It's not the requirement to experience His grace. It's the reward. We live in the in-between, the now and the not yet. Jesus is risen from the dead, but we wait for that final victory over death. You know, there's something in my, um, in my own life and experience that has been challenging and difficult. Um, I mean, there's a lot that's challenging difficult about me, um, but this is one of the big ones. Um, but for the sake of perspective, I want to tell you about something else first. You know, like um, when you're driving down the highway and you're going, let's say, eight or nine above the speed limit. My dad taught me when I was 16, eight or nine, you're going to be okay. Actually, he said nine above in the south, four above in the north. But I think things have changed. I think things have changed, or maybe the South begins at Indianapolis, I'm not sure. But you're, in that, you're, in, you're on the 69, you're going towards Indy, and some knucklehead comes up behind you and has the audacity to run up on your bumper, honk, and then swerve around you on the right. Um, and he or she gives you that look, maybe even the finger. And do you know what I wanna say in that moment? What happened to you when you were a child (laughs) that you turned out this way? But you know what I've learned to do instead? And I'm I'm not kidding here. This is actually real. This is what I do. Uh, I've learned and said, and I even say this out loud, there are a lot of ways to go through life, and that's just one of them. And then I go on with my day. But here's the thing. Patience. It comes easy for me. Uh, I have patience of steel. If, if you're with me and you're in a traffic jam, let me drive. I love it. You can look around and check your email. It's wonderful. I love it. It's great. But I was forged in the fire of teaching middle school. Patience is a prerequisite when it's you against 25 sixth graders. But I've also never really struggled with patience, I rarely raise my voice. I've never had a temper, and I'm not trying to brag or anything, but my point is this. Some of you will spend your whole lives developing patience, uh, learning to not let your temper get the better of you, and God will use that process. Sometimes we even call it a struggle, and he'll use it to your benefit, His grace in your life will be on full display in the midst of that process. So keep that in mind, because there's a good chance you may not be able to connect or relate to what I've dealt with and will continue to deal with, and that's all right. But for most of my adult life, I've dealt with depression, um, and at different points, debilitating depression. You know, there have been seasons of joy Uh, uh, and peace, but for the most part, there were seasons when joy and peace were impossible to find, Um, moments when getting out of bed was all that I could accomplish in a day. I think I've shared this before, like uh, on a Sunday morning, that after I graduated from Ball State, I went to IU Med School, Uh, and a little more than two years later, I dropped out. And I dropped out because if I didn't drop out, they were going to kick me out. My grades were so bad. I would say that at least 80% of the reason, if not the entire reason, that that didn't work out was because of this depression that I deal with. But it was the years right after that, a couple of years when things were really bad. I didn't have a job for, I'd say, at least nine months. Nine months. After after that happened, um, I crashed at a friend's place for a while, and then moved back in with my parents. Um, I know I didn't have any money. Uh, Somehow, though, I was able to have enough to at least put gas in the car. But I really have no memory of how that even happened. I couldn't apply for jobs like I would try. I'd drive up and down McGalliard, even sometimes pulling into the parking lot. And then I couldn't get out of the car to go in and ask for an application. I was too ashamed and too anxious. So many, many times I cried out to God, help me, rescue me from this. And I asked, why? Why will you not bring healing? How many times do I have to pray for joy and hope and peace before giving up? And eventually and slowly... Things started to change for the better. Um, But the depression didn't go away. I just lived in that darkness for some time. I mean, talk about a quarter-life crisis. Um, That John Mayer song, anybody remember that? I was 24 years old. I was a major failure. I was broke, unemployed, and sitting at rock bottom. Now, over time, and I'm very grateful for this, The depression has decreased in its intensity quite significantly, I'd say. And it's also decreased in how long it sticks around when it does show up. Um, But even in the last month, I've had some low points. But but let me tell you this. Let me tell you something that that I've learned. And I would say that I've experienced this because I've heard Jesus say this to me. He said to me, all those prayers that you've prayed, I've heard them, and I'm answering them, just not in the way you expected or wanted. Because what did I want? I wanted lightning from the sky. I wanted this big, giant moment, and boom, the depression is gone. I thought that For some reason, God was upset with me or he was waiting for me to figure something out. And then the lightning would strike. But no, his answer to my prayers has always been, yes, but let me do it my way. You see, grace is the answer to our suffering, to our struggles, but it's not the answer we want. We want a God whose primary concern is to alleviate our suffering, but God's primary purpose for our life always is that we know and experience fully the love of God and to become more like Jesus. You know, there are a million things that I don't know and will never know, but I know this. Over and over again, God has shown me his grace by saying to me, showing me, you are not alone. In the process of bringing more and more freedom, as the Spirit of God gives me joy and peace for my life, he's almost always used other people as the way in which that love is displayed. I mean, the bond and the depth of love that I have with my wife. It's because I'm learning to depend on her more and more. And my family and then the friends that I have, including this great staff I get to serve with, uh, the folks in my small group, I'm learning to be more vulnerable and honest. Um, And in that, not only do I get these deep friendships out of the deal, I get to experience God's love, His acceptance, His forgiveness through them. And do you know what we call that experience? That experience that we get through others. It's called church. Church isn't the place where we show up and pretend that we've got it all together. Church is the place where we show up with our mess Um, What we do here, and I'm not talking about like the churchy stuff we're doing right now. I mean the relationships, the interactions, the love your neighbor as yourself part. We are the primary way for each other that we experience God's grace. Uh, Eugene Peterson, um, he calls church a colony of heaven in the country of death. But this experience of grace in our lives, it doesn't happen automatically. Yes, God opens the door. The invitations have been sent. There's always a seat at the table open for you. But we also have to be willing to respond and say yes. And I think we could learn a few things from the folks in this story of the blind man. Um, There's a warning, I think, from the Pharisees. Don't miss God. Don't miss what God is doing in your life because you're stubborn. If you expect or demand that God only works in certain ways, you're probably going to miss out on something. There's a warning, too, from his parents. Um, Be aware of your own fear. Experiencing God's grace, ultimately, it's an act of faith, and at times I'd say even an act of defiance against that resistance that builds up within each of us. Uh, there's a warning from the disciples as well. You remember at the beginning of the story, they, they're the ones that ask first, who sinned, this man or his parents? They were getting too caught up in the, in the whys and the what-fors and the theology behind it. And so I think from them we learn that it's possible, quite possible, Um, that you can be close to Jesus. You can be on a serious spiritual journey and still miss what God is doing. And then from the man who was born blind, I I don't think it was so much a warning as it is a promise that Jesus sees you. He wants you to experience His grace, His healing, His wholeness. He will not leave you or forsake you, and he'll be with you even when it all hits the fan. And so the question I have for you is, where have you seen God's grace unfold and work in your life? What has he done for you that you can't do for yourself? You know, and, and even think, too, about the people around you in your life, your family, your friends, or folks that you know here at Commonway. How have you seen God's grace work in their life? And then I want to ask this too. In what ways do you want to experience more of God's grace now? Where do you need God to be at work in your life? There are a million things that I don't know, but I know this. God always responds when we ask Him to be at work in our lives. It probably won't be the way you expect or want. He's not going to solve everything today. But He will use whatever you're facing for your good to draw you closer to Him. And there's something quite extraordinary that happens While grace is unfolding, while God is at work, even in those areas where He doesn't seem like He is, part of that process, the point of that process, is that in the ongoing unfolding, we become more like Jesus. So here's where you come in for me, and I hope I can uh, be the same for you, that we need each other for hope. Um, When I don't have hope, but I know your story, if I know how God is working in your life, in your weaknesses, in your struggles, then that builds up hope in me. And for you, maybe in those toughest times when hope is nowhere to be found, that I can have hope for you. I mean, I don't know. How would I? I don't know how God is going to work this out for you. I don't know what he has planned, but I know he's a good God. And I'm full of hope that his grace is sufficient for you. Uh, We're a church, right? We're a colony of heaven in the country of death. And that's what we do for each other. There's power in our stories. The power is in that contrast between when I was blind and now I can see. I mean, imagine if the man from our story, from John 9, what if he never told anyone again about being blind that time before he met Jesus? I mean, what a tragedy that would have been. And just like he did, the challenge for us, the invitation for us, is to tell what we know. We need to hear each other's stories. I need that from you, and I hope that I can give that to you in return. Uh, There's a a verse from Romans that I mentioned earlier that I want to come back to as a way of of, of, um, wrapping this up today. It's... It's from Romans, chapter 8, verse 28. I think it's a verse that is very easy for us to, like, um, just rip all the meaning out of. Because if we're not careful, it just almost sounds uh, sing-songy. You know, I could imagine there's somebody knitting this on a pillow, which is a great... If you're going to knit something, knit this. But you know what I mean? Like, it... It, it's, it, there's so much more teeth to this uh, than I think we sometimes give it credit. And we know, again, you may not know much, but you know this, that in all things, in all things, things that give us joy when we celebrate together, the good times, but also those times When the struggle is real, when the weight of the world is on us, that in all things God works for the good. I mean, it's God who works in his own way, in his own time, in his wisdom, but always for our good. And so we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Here's the good news, the best news, that's you and me. No matter where we are in our path, no matter where we are in our journey of saying, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to dedicate my life to you. Um, He is at work for our good. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. And what's His purpose? That we can experience, that we can know His love. That that grace that He offers to us daily that it does that deep work in us to transform us to become more and more like Jesus so that we can experience that life in abundance that Jesus promises. Will you stand with me and we'll pray. Father, I am just thankful, so grateful as I know we all are, for the work that you do in our lives. Lord, I thank you that we don't have to understand it. We don't have to um, uh, comprehend it. Uh, Lord, we just have to say yes. Be at work, Lord Jesus. Lord, thank you for your patience and your kindness. God, that you're not in a hurry. Often, Lord, we're the ones in a hurry, and you're saying, take a breath. I got this. Trust me. So, Father, we we ask that we trust you. Help us, Lord, when that's difficult. Lord, we love you, and we thank you that you are such a good, good God. And it's in your Son's precious name that we say, Amen.